and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. Before we begin our study of the word of truth this morning we need to make sure that we are prepared. We do that through the use of 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, what takes place at the moment of salvation? We put our faith and trust in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So we enter into an eternal relationship with God at that point, which we define by a sphere, a circle. We are placed in Christ. The Scripture says, If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. This represents our eternal position, which we can never lose. It's a permanent relationship that is ours forever. And yet there is also a relationship which we have with God in time, on a day-to-day basis. When we are first saved, we are instantly filled with God the Holy Spirit. But we can lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. The Bible calls that grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit, at which time we come under the control of our sin nature once again, and the believer can be virtually indistinguishable from the unbeliever. We can, If we stay in this status, we can end up destroying our lives and being absolutely miserable under divine discipline because we're under the control of the sin nature. The only way to recover the filling of the Holy Spirit is through the use of 1 John 1.9. This is both personal and private. It's nobody else's business what we do. The scripture teaches that because of our position in Christ, we have a royal priesthood that is ours forever. We are, Jesus Christ is our high priest and every single believer is a priest, a royal priest, according to 1 Peter chapter 3. We are a royal priest in the family of God and as part of our priesthood, We have the privilege of confessing our sins directly and privately to God the Father. The instant that we name our sins, the instant we admit or acknowledge our sins to God, and that's the meaning of the word homo legeo in the Greek. This is important because the word confess has picked up a lot of religious baggage over the years. Homo legeo. H-O-M-O-L-O-G-E-O. Confess. What does it mean to confess? Does that mean to feel sorry for your sins? Does that mean contrition? No, not at all. If we look at various passages where this word is used, we realize its meaning from its synonyms. It means to admit or to acknowledge guilt, that we have done something. After David sinned his sin with Bathsheba, 
and then to cover it up, murdered her husband, and then engaged in political intrigue to cover up his adultery and his, um, his murder. When all of that was over with, and David was coming back to God, he said, I admit my sins. I acknowledge my transgressions. He did not have to go through any ritual. He did not have to go through any other form of uh, emotionalism in order to impress God with the sincerity of his confession. It's just as if you go before the bar of God's justice at the Supreme Court of Heaven. If you were in a courtroom and you were had been given a ticket for doing 70 miles an hour in a 40 mile an hour zone, and you were in a hurry to get somewhere and there was no traffic whatsoever, you were glad you did it, you enjoyed doing it, the road was clear, you had every bit of fun that you could enjoy, feeling your car go at that high rate of speed and getting there in plenty of time. And yet, when you stood before the judge, the judge would say, are you guilty or not guilty? And you would say, yes, judge, I am guilty. I admit that I did that. And you would be judged on the basis of your confession, your admission of guilt, and not on the basis of how you feel about it. Because the penalty would be the same whether you were glad you did it or whether you came in sackcloth and ashes trying to impress the judge with your remorse and how sorry you were that you did 70 miles an hour in a 40 mile an hour zone. Now that may be a somewhat trivial example, but the point is it's a legal situation. How you feel about it is not the issue. The issue is how God feels about it. And so we come to confession by admitting, acknowledging our acknowledging our sins in privacy to God the Father, and instantly, the Bible says, we, are, we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, we are restored to fellowship with God, and we can then go forward with our spiritual growth. And we grow not through some kind of emotional experience. We grow not because we've gone to church and we've prayed and we've done all the, quote, religious things. That's not what causes growth. We grow because we have taken in the Word of God. We have studied the Word of God. We have believed it. We have made it a part of our soul. The Bible commands us that we are to desire the sincere milk of the Word. Why? That you may grow thereby. Growth comes only by learning and then applying the Word of God in every area of our experience. That is why we take the time on Sunday on Wednesday, and we put an emphasis on studying the Bible because that's what we're commanded to do. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, correctly dividing, rightly dividing or correctly understanding the word of truth. So with that, let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are in fellowship and ready to study God's word this morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together as a body of believers, those who have put their faith alone in Christ alone, and because of our royal priesthood, we can admit our sins to you and we know that we are instantly forgiven, not because we try to feel sorry for it or add to the payment of Christ, but because Christ paid it all on the cross. And because the penalty is paid and on that basis, we know that we have forgiveness instantly and we do not have to go through any form of penance because all of the work was done by Christ on the cross. And now, Father, as we look at your word, we pray that you would make these things abundantly clear to us as we study this episode in John chapter 4. Help us to understand how we can apply these principles in our own life. 
We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We began our study of this episode last week, and we will uh, review that briefly to get the context and then go forward. Jesus has been involved in a ministry in the south of Judea, the region of Palestine that is a separate uh, province. It's south of Galilee, separated from Galilee in both the Roman administration and geographically by a, a historical area known as Samaria. We look at the map on the overhead. Judea was in this region down here in the south, just to the west of the Dead Sea. To the north, up here you have Galilee by the Sea of Galilee, and in between you had Samaria. Samaria, we saw last time, had a very interesting and checkered past, because in 722 B.C. it had been uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was wiped out by the forces of, the, of Assyria, and there had a policy of repopulation and scattering any conquered people. So as they came in, they took the Jews from the northern kingdom out and they settled them in various other areas of their empire and they brought Gentile peoples and various other races and ethnic groups from around the Assyrian empire and brought them back and resettled them in Samaria. So now you have a mongrel population as far as the Jews were concerned, a mixed breed. There were a number of Jews, but they had intermarried with these various Gentile peoples and they were no longer pure Jews. So the Jews from Judea looked down their noses at the Samaritans. They had a prejudice against the Samaritans that was much worse than any kind of racial prejudice that you see in this country with very few exceptions. If you were a God-fearing Jew, then you would have nothing at all to do with Samaritans to the north. Jesus is been down here in the south. He's been teaching the gospel. He spent about six months both in Jerusalem and in Judea. And now he has aroused the ire of the Pharisees. They are beginning to investigate him. And he knows in the omniscience of his deity that it would not be long before they mounted a major campaign against him. And it's not time yet. He knows that he needs to carry out his ministry and he needs to accomplish certain things within the plan of God. So he begins to move north to uh, Galilee. This is where we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 4. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now this was an important word. We stopped and paid attention to this. It's the Greek verb, ede, which indicates necessity. Now, why was it necessary for him to pass through Samaria? Well, as you head north out of Judea, you had two or three different routes that you could go. You could head over across the Jordan and go up on the far side, on the eastern side, which is the way that most of the legalists, most of the Pharisees would go. But Jesus goes due north. He leaves down here in Judea, heads up the main highway along here, and stops for lunch on the shoulder of Mount Gerizim, right outside of the town of Shechem. Now, the reason it says Jesus had to go north was not simply because this was the route of the highway, but he could have taken an alternate route. Jesus had an appointment. He had an appointment with a woman at the well. 
Now Jesus, now the woman did not know she had an appointment. She's like many people. She's going about her life in denial of spiritual realities. But Jesus is going to meet her there and he is going to confront her with his claims to be the Messiah. It will transform her life and she will be the instrument God uses to inaugurate an incredible revival in Shechem. This is where we stopped last time, down in verse 6. Verse 5 reads, So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, which is just outside of Shechem, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Joseph's well was there. Now, if we were to go back into Genesis chapter 33, verse 19, we would learn a little bit about this parcel of ground. Jacob had been living outside of the land. When he finally returned to the land and returned from Padan Aram, he bought a field from the children of Hamar for a hundred pieces of silver. It's probably a very large piece of land. And later part of this was given to his son Joseph as his inheritance. When Joseph was brought, Joseph's body was brought back from Egypt after the Exodus, this is where Joseph was buried. Now, there's a couple of little side points, little side applications, no extra charge. First point, after he bought the land from the Amorites, they failed to honor the business transaction. You see, there were problems with integrity back then as well. They reclaimed the land as their own. So Jacob had to amass an army and he had to take back what was rightfully his through force of arms. The point is that violence is sometimes necessary to claim and to preserve what is ours. This is the principle that we find throughout Scripture of freedom through military victory. The Bible is not a book of pacifism and Christianity is not a religion that espouses pacifism. Throughout the Scriptures there is an emphasis on these principles that true freedom is earned and maintained often through military victory and violence is sometimes justified in this arena. Now, having re-secured this, this became his personal property. So that's the second thing we see here. It's this emphasis on personal ownership of property. We don't see an emphasis in the Bible on communal sharing communism or socialism, but we see principles that are at the very core of a capitalist concept of economics. So we see the emphasis on the right to private ownership of property, which is the basis for wealth and the basis for accumulation of wealth, which is supported in the Bible. And this is one of the interesting things about the founding of this country. If you go back to the history in the 1600s and 1700s of this country, the French came in and were colonizing in Canada and also in what was then called the Northwest, the Old Northwest, which is Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and further west. And the French concept was that they were here to trade. They were here to make money, and they just set up trading posts. But that was a different philosophy from that of the English. The English came to own property. They came to develop a future. And this was part of all of the conflict that occurred between the English and the French. There was the backdrop for the French and Indian War, wars in which the British defeated, finally defeated the French, and the British were, took control of the continent and eventually established a nation 
on this continent that had as its core values the values that came from the Old and New Testament. During that time, it was a uh, fantastic time for the expansion of the gospel. And there were missionaries that went out not only to the Indians, but there were missionaries that began to go out to different parts of the world. And the people that came here had a devotion to the Word of God and to the Scriptures, and they went to the Scriptures to, to find their basis for every area of knowledge, whether it had to do with law, economics, or personal and family life. Everything was supposed to be grounded upon uh, the Scriptures and what God had revealed. So they built a nation that was based upon concepts of uh, free enterprise and concepts of capitalism and freedom through military victory. And just to show, give you a little insight into what was taking place in terms of spiritual warfare, as you have this dynamic taking place through the colonization of North America, they were coming in and taking land away from the Indians, and everybody wants to whine and cry about how the Indians were given a raw deal. And very few people today are taught about what it was like among the uh, so-called Native Americans. They were very demonized. They had pagan religions where they worshipped all kinds of, of, of uh, spirits. They were into, uh, at times, human sacrifice, especially if they had conquered another Indian tribe, then they would slaughter everybody they, they killed. They would eat their hearts. They would cut out various other viscera and eat them. They would usually take one or two of the uh, uh, more brave warriors that they had just defeated, and they would either burn them at the stake and then roast parts of their body to eat them, or they would boil them and then eat them. This was typical of all of the tribes from the Iroquois Confederacy to the Shawnee and Ottawa further west and many other tribes. And they had to be destroyed in order to provide something that was superior. The same principle that you see in the Old Testament, where the Canaanites, who had given themselves over completely to demonic religions had to be destroyed and were supposed to be annihilated by Israel. But you always get those people who are bleeding hearts and who just feel so sorry for these people who, who have lost something. Well, they lost it because they, they, they forfeited this because of their rejection of God and this is God's divine discipline on them. Now, that's just a little sidetrack with no extra added cost. What we learn from the example of Jacob is that he owned property That was the basis for wealth, the basis for accumulation of wealth, which is supported by the Bible, and it was to be passed on to his heirs. This was called the inheritance of Jacob. It was a, this well was a capital asset that was transferred within the family from father to son for generations. It was the basis for much of his prosperity. You see, the Bible knows nothing about socialism. The Bible knows nothing about uh, governments coming along or doesn't support governments coming along and taking away what is yours. You see, socialism thinks that everything that you have, all of your possessions and all of your money really belongs to the government. And so the government has the right to determine what they do with your money. But that's antithetical to freedom. If you want to have true freedom, then you cannot have socialism. So the Bible supports the accumulation of wealth and that this wealth and this inheritance is to be passed on from generation to generation in successive order. In fact, Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But modern political thinking says, A wealthy man leaves his inheritance to the government. 
So you have the right to go out and work hard and accumulate whatever wealth that you, you manage to accumulate, and then the government can take it away from you when you die. Well, that is antithetical to any principles of true freedom and to a solid uh, economic foundation. Now, those are various principles that we can derive from the Scriptures and just a little additional insight about Jacob's well. Jacob's well existed in an area that was fairly arid, and it became a basis for prosperity. Water is very important in the Middle East, and it became a basis for prosperity for 4,000 years. It's still an operating well. This, this purchase was a very uh, insightful purchase by Jacob. Now, that's a little bit of the Old Testament background. When we come to the verse here, it says, Jacob's well was there. The Greek uses the word here, pege, P-E-G-E. Now, there's another word that is also used in this passage to describe a well, and that is the word, Phraar, P-H-R-E-A-R. Now, this is going to be important for understanding what Jesus says here. A pege is a kind, a kind of well that is fed by an underground spring. So it is moving water, continuously moving water. This provides the source of why this well continues to provide water for, for flocks even to this day. And over the generations, this well has produced millions of gallons of water to water both herds and to provide water and nourishment for people. Now, the second word here for R is, should be translated a cistern. A cistern is just a rocky, a rocky depression where water is collected. And sometimes there'll be water there, and in periods of drought, there will be no water there. This word is used for this well in verses 11 and 12. So apparently, Jacob's well was both. It had an underground spring, a pege, and it also, because of the rocky nature, was a cistern where water would collect. It's said that water is there through most of the year. The well itself is about 135 feet deep. And it is about seven and a half feet in diameter, with a neck at the top about four feet uh, deep and three feet in diameter. And you would drop your bucket or your your skin or whatever uh, kind of receptacle you had down to the water, and then hoist your water out of it. In ancient times, there's no cover on the well, but today there is to keep the debris out. And I notice I keep hitting my microphone. We need to try to resolve this scraping problem on the mic, but it's getting to where it distracts me. Okay, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, that shows his humanity, he's weary, was sitting thus by the well. It's about the sixth hour. That means it's about noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, as we look at this episode, as Jesus carries on this conversation with the woman at the well, we want to compare and contrast this with Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, we study Jesus' explanation of the gospel to Nicodemus. Here, we're going to see his explanation of the gospel to the woman, and there's quite a bit of difference. So we need to understand this to help us understand how we can explain the gospel to unbelievers. 
Notice this is the process of day-to-day living in Jesus' life. He is not going out of his way uh, to have some kind of evangelistic crusade, knocking on doors, or anything, putting tracts out, or whatever it may be. He is doing this as part of his everyday uh, life. He's very tired. It would be easy for him to just think, gosh, I'm just too tired. I just want to sit back here and rest and be by myself. I really don't want to get distracted by getting into a heavy conversation about God and about salvation with this woman. I would just rather sit back here and close my eyes and take a little nap. He's been walking all morning. He's hungry. He's tired. He sent the disciples off in verse 8 to buy food. That was for two reasons. Number one, they needed food. Number two, They are, like many immature believers, full of enthusiasm and short on knowledge, and they were infected with the prejudice of Judea, and they certainly would not have wanted him to talk with this Samaritan woman. First of all, she was a woman, and there was no basis in Judaism at that time. In fact, they were so legalistic about it that if a a rabbi were walking in public with his wife, he was forbidden to talk with her because they were afraid somebody might not know that that was his wife, and they might get the wrong idea. So, they were very legalistic. Not only would Jesus, as a rabbi, not be expected to speak to a woman, but she was a Samaritan. And at this time, under the, uh, the legalistic uh, rules of the Pharisees, a Samaritan would never be... Uh, you, a Jew could buy food from a Samaritan, but a Jew could not eat after a Samaritan or drink after a Samaritan because if their lips touched uh, the plate or touched the fork or touched the glass then that would render that instrument, that utensil, ceremonially unclean. And then if you ate or drank after them, then you would be rendered ceremonially unclean, and you couldn't go to the temple or the tabernacle. So, so no Jew would talk to a woman, number one, talk to a Samaritan, number two, and they certainly wouldn't ask a Samaritan to give me something to drink. See, Jesus doesn't have anything to get the water out of the well with. He doesn't have a bag. He doesn't have a bucket. He doesn't have anything to hoist the water. So he has to use her receptacle. So she knows that she's going to drop it in, and this is what she's been drinking out of, and he's willing to drink after her. Well, that's just unheard of. And what we learn here is the principle that Jesus is exhibiting of grace orientation. That he is not violating anything in the Old Testament. He is violating the legalistic Rules and regulations of the Pharisees. And you see, that's the problem with religion. Religion says that man does something, and then God is supposed to bless it. Religion always emphasizes ritual, but it is ritual without reality. Christianity, on the other hand, talks about a relationship with God, where God does all the work, And man simply accepts it. This is the problem that Jesus has with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him. When we look at the contrast between Nicodemus and the woman, Nicodemus is curious. But he has a religious background and he's all confused by his religiosity. He thinks that you have to do something. You have to be engaged in all kinds of ritual. You You have to pray. You have to go to synagogue a certain number of times a week, and you have to do all of these things to impress God. The woman, uh, she doesn't think she can do anything to impress God, and she's in a state of denial about spiritual reality. Like a lot of people we talk to. They have pushed spirituality so far out of their mind that they 
are negative to it. They've just denied it. It doesn't exist. There's no realm out there. So I don't want to think about it. Nicodemus was curious. He was, he was religious. The Samaritan woman is non-religious. She doesn't want to think about anything related to God whatsoever. Third, Nicodemus had a, uh, had a background. He was, he was intellectual. He had studied the Scriptures. This woman does not know the Scriptures. She is basically uh, ignorant of the Old Testament. She just operates on some hearsay related to spiritual controversy, which he will bring up and which we'll see in a little bit. So what can we learn from this? As we get ready to uh, sit down and talk with somebody about the Gospel, there's a couple of things we need to point out. First of all, you need to be as prepared as you can be. Now, you can always convince yourself that you need to have a little more preparation. Well, what if they ask this? I don't know. Well, what if they ask that? Well, I'm afraid that they might ask a question that I can't answer. And so what happens so often is people rationalize that they're just not prepared enough. And so they use that to justify not engaging the person in a conversation, and that's illegitimate. What do I mean by being prepared? You need to understand the basic elements of the gospel. The basic elements of the gospel include, first of all, an understanding of why people are condemned. Too often what happens is in, in, in evangelism is people just jump right into something. They just jump right into, uh, well, you need Jesus is the answer and you need to accept Jesus as your Savior. Well, wait a minute. Jesus is the answer to what? Why, what do I need to be saved from? See, we move too quickly. The Bible always makes it clear that salvation is from something and people need to understand the basis of condemnation. And the basis for condemnation is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means God has an absolutely perfect standard. He is plus R. He is perfect righteousness. Man, on the other hand, has sinned. He is minus R. There is nothing man can do to get up to the level of perfect righteousness. He can't go to church enough. He can't be involved in enough ritual. If he moved in and lived in church and got involved in ritual 24 hours a day for 70 or 80 years, it wouldn't do any, any good except promote religion. It wouldn't get him any closer to God. The issue in condemnation is that man can do nothing to, to earn or deserve salvation. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You need to understand a few basic verses like Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, a few of these verses, that man is lost. He is dead in his trespasses and sins. And a dead person can't do anything. So what has to happen? God has to provide a solution. Someone else has to do the, do the work. And then you focus on what the solution is. God provides the solution through Jesus Christ. He sent His Son to die on the cross as our substitute. He who knew no sin was made sin as a substitute for us. So we have to understand basics of condemnation for the wages of sin is death and then the solution, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
We need to be prepared as much as we can to understand the basic issues and to be able to clearly explain the gospel. Secondly, we need to understand that it is not our job to convince people of the veracity of Scripture because you can't do it. We've studied this again and again. The issues aren't intellectual. The issues are not historical. The issues are spiritual. Romans 1, 19 and 20 make it clear that knowledge of God... Let's look at that a minute. Romans 1, 19 through 20. Just turn over there. Hold your place in John. And let's just turn to Romans chapter 1. We all know there are people out there who claim that God does not exist. At the very core of their being, they know they're wrong. They'll never admit it. They won't even admit it to themselves. And what's the basis for saying that? Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who what? Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's what they're doing. They are actively suppressing truth. Incidentally, that's the same word for quenching the Holy Spirit. They are suppressing truth. Why? Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them. Every single human being comes to a knowledge of God, what we call God consciousness. At some point early in life, every person comes to a point where they are aware that there's something outside of themselves. First you come to a point of self-consciousness. You realize, oh, this is me. And you see that in a small child and everything is self-oriented. Then they get a little bit older and they become aware that, oh, there are other people and they are other conscious. And eventually, they come to a point where they are God conscious. There's something greater than me. There's something greater than uh, uh, that made the heavens and the earth. And then at that point, they have to make a volitional decision, either positive or negative, that they want to know more about that person or not. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. This is a statement that is true for every single human being in all of human history. God has made it clear to everybody that He exists. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. See, there is no excuse. It is so clear that that God says there's no excuse for rejecting me because the nonverbal testimony of my existence is so clear. But what happens? Those who reject God, who are negative toward God, suppress that truth in unrighteousness, verse 18. Verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile, that is, empty in their speculations. They began, well, I reject God, so how many gods are there? There's always a substitute. Man always develops some other religion. Even they, uh, but they become futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So here we see the process, but the principle is clear that everybody knows God exists. So it's not up to us to convince people because the issue ultimately is spiritual. It's our job to make it clear and that it is the job of God the Holy Spirit 
who is the sovereign executive of evangelism to make the issues understandable and clear to the individual and then they have to make a decision to accept or reject the gospel. Acceptance or rejection of the gospel is not acceptance or rejection of you. It may lead to that, but it is not the same. Just because you explain the gospel to somebody one day and they don't buy it, doesn't mean they've rejected you. And see, this is what happens so often is people get involved in some sort of ego wrangling. And next thing you know, witnessing turns into uh, religious argumentation. Always avoid that. The issue isn't who's going to win the argument. As soon as it starts headed down that road, you better bail out as quickly as you can because once ego gets involved, then you've lost the whole opportunity. The issue is simply the, the truth of Scripture. So we need to be as prepared as we can be. Secondly, we need to realize it's not our job to convince the person. Just use the Scriptures, explain the doctrines of salvation, and leave the rest to God the Holy Spirit. Three, we need to realize the issues are spiritual and not intellectual. Rejection does not indicate that you've done a poor job. It doesn't mean that you should have gone back to church. If only so-and-so were here, he would know all the answers. It's not the issue. The issue is their rejection of truth. Remember, Noah preached for a hundred years and had no converts. And what did God say? God said that Noah was faithful. Noah is praised in Hebrews chapter 11 because of his faithfulness. The issue for God is not that you win as so many numbers of converts, because God's not keeping score. Ultimately, it depends on God, not on you. You're just the instrument for communicating the gospel and making it clear to people. The issue is faithfulness. The issue is not numbers. And then fourth, you need to read some good books to help give you some, some information, some content. So when people ask you questions about what about the heathen, what about... Um, uh, Evil, the problems of evil, how do you know Jesus really died on the cross? How do you know he really rose from the dead? That you can have some good answers for them. A couple of you can read C.S. Lewis has a book called Mere Christianity, which is good. Josh McDowell has some good information in a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. There's an older book by Paul Little called Know Why You Believe, which is very good and I think is still available. But some of these are books that you ought to take the time to go through and read. Not only will they help give you greater confidence in the truth of what you believe, but they will put a little more ammunition in your arsenal so that when you're sitting down and communicating the gospel with an unbeliever, you can make the gospel clear. And once they're saved, then you can help answer some of their questions. So this is a situation we see here. Jesus is ready. He knows the answers. He's there by divine appointment. And he is going to carry out this conversation. Now, how in the world are we going to get this lady's attention? She comes out to draw water. And Jesus immediately asks her a question, give me a drink. Now, this is always a problem we have when we're communicating the gospel to an unbeliever. Here you are. You're a believer. You operate on the basis, or you should operate on the basis of divine viewpoint. The unbeliever is over here and they're operating on human viewpoint. They're either operating on uh, some uh, system of rationalism or some system of empiricism or some system of mysticism. Whatever it is, you need to challenge them with the truth of the gospel. Now, what are you going to use as a basis for common ground? See, some people will sit down and they'll start talking to the unbeliever and take, for an example, a rationalist like um, 
who's this guy, Bishop John Spong, who's an Episcopal heretic up here in uh, Boston somewhere, denies the resurrection. It ought to be defrocked, but he's not because liberalism controls the Episcopal denomination. So here he is. He says there's no real resurrection. Jesus did not rise from the dead. And he's written several books like that. And he goes out and considers anybody who believes that to be a real uh, intellectual nut. That's you and me. So how do you communicate with somebody like that? Well, the typical approach that you'll find is, well, let's appeal to history. We can prove that the tomb is empty. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Because, see, somebody like that can say, okay, the tomb was empty, but that's just an historical aberration. If life is ruled by chance, then anything can happen. And that's just something that happened, and it's not, oh, it doesn't mean that your interpretation of an empty tomb is the correct interpretation of the empty tomb. So now you've got a real problem. You've appealed to history as the objective common ground, and, and it's fallen apart. You can appeal to reason and logic. Say, okay, let's be uh, rational about all of this. How could all of these things come to be? And you start talking, looking at flowers, and you look at the complexity of a flower. You look at the complexity of a DNA chain. You look at the complexity of a cell and the cell structure, and you say, well, this couldn't have happened by pure random chance. It must have had a designer. And so now you're trying to use one of the arguments for the existence of God, and they say, well, I don't believe that, and there are very sophisticated philosophical arguments out there to disprove all of the arguments for the existence of God. And uh, because that's operating on a human system of autonomy here, and so you're shot down again. What's the basis for common ground? You see, this person is an unbeliever is operating on, on a human viewpoint assumption about reality, and so you can't use as common ground something that is already being interpreted by that. That's why Jesus confronted Nicodemus that way. It's a very intellectual argument that Jesus used there. He doesn't do that with the woman at the well. That's not her background. The principle is, don't try to witness the same way to everybody. Everybody's coming from a different perspective and different background. Jesus uses his common ground, their creatureliness. He asks her for a drink of water. They have that in common. They have physical needs in common. What's an illustration of that that you might use? Well, you're sitting around the table in the coffee room at work or something and somebody's talking about how life is, is tough and they're just stressed out. They're having to work uh, 60 hours a week. Um, you know, they've got problems at home, whatever it is. And you say, yeah, you know, you can really identify with that. You're talking one creature to another. You're living in a world that's under the curse of sin. Life is tough. There's adversity out there. Then you can move from the commonality of your uh, experience as a creature in a fallen world to how you handle problems and adversity in life versus the way uh, human viewpoint teaches you to handle that. And so your, your starting point is not uh, how a person thinks or what they think. Your starting point is on what we have in common as a creature. And that's what Jesus does. And in the process, he gets her curiosity. She says in verse 9, How is it that you, being a Jew, can ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And of course, the apostle could have added, and, and rabbis don't have any dealings with women. So, she is really curious about this, this uh, guy who is asking her for a drink of water. And then we have... Uh, Jesus' answer in verse 10, he says, and he's trying to arouse her curiosity. Remember back here, 
when I compared the Samaritan woman with Nicodemus, she has she is minus spiritual interest. She's just out there doing her day-to-day job. She is like so many people, they just sort of deaden themselves to spiritual reality, somehow convincing themselves that there is no God, there is no accountability, or if there is a God in heaven, I'm good enough, and God's going to understand that I'm a... I'm a failure and I've made mistakes and he's just going to let me into heaven. So somehow everything's going to work out just fine. You see, that's how most people go through life, is they think somehow it's all going to work out. And yet we have to arouse their spiritual interest in the midst of our uh, conversation with them. So Jesus does this. Jesus says now in verse 10, he makes another move. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. See, he's going to move from physical water now to living water. Now, the interesting thing here is this is what? A pege. This is a spring-fed well. So he's going to start using this as the basis for his analogy. He says, if you really knew who was talking to you, woman, you would drop your pail and you would, you would just ask me for, for living water. She still doesn't get the point. He's trying to uh, arouse her interest in spiritual things and she is just dead set on keeping her focus on day-to-day events, living life on the physical realm, and never facing spiritual realities. Like so many people who have anesthetized themselves to God and don't want to have anything to do with him. So Jesus is is trying to raise her whole concept of spiritual need. The point here, which I've already made, is that we aren't supposed to talk prematurely about solutions until the people realize they have a problem. See, Jesus is not going to jump into telling her that he's the Messiah with eternal life until she begins to recognize that she's got some kind of a problem. And she's just ignoring the whole thing. Verse 11, she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? See, she's just right over her head. She's just focused on the physical reality, and she has no clue what what Jesus is talking about. She's like so many people today that we talk to. They don't think. They don't know how to think. And we're raising a generation of people who don't know how to think. Uh, It's incredible what's taking place in our educational system. All they do today is teach social issues and historical revisionism, and they never teach any real content anymore. There was a time in our country when the average 15-year-old had read Plato and Aristotle. Today they don't have a clue who Plato and Aristotle are. So we're falling apart as a nation internally because we just don't want to think. And when people don't want to think, they will buy anything that, that people want to give them. All kinds of... That's why you have so much pseudo-religion on television. Jesus is trying desperately to get this woman to think, and he is, uh, and she just wants to operate on this superficial level. Verse 12, she continues her response. She says... Not only does she ask, where do you get living water? But then she says, you're not greater than our father Jacob. So she knows a little bit about the history. They're right there by Jacob's well. And she said, look, this well was given us by Jacob. It's lasted for 2,000 years. You're not greater than him. And the way this is constructed in the Greek, she expects a negative answer. Well, you're not greater. No, no, you're not. 
for you than Jacob who gave us a well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. And Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Now this brings out the point that in most religious systems, they just try to cover over the need. And you have to continually go back and get more. You, you never have, you never are sure of your salvation. So many religious systems and denominations today teach you that you'll never know whether or not you are saved. And yet that's not what the Gospel of John says. The Gospel of John says that these are written that you might know that you have eternal life. Right here, right now, no matter what else you do in life, no matter how good you are, no matter how bad you are, John says you can know with certainty right now what your eternal destiny is. And yet, most religions teach that you can't know until the day you die because it's only then that you can look back and know whether or not you've been good enough. Well, that's nothing but works. And the Bible says that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. So Jesus says, points out the inadequacy of all other solutions and the inadequacy of the physical water. And He says, you keep coming day in and day out to get this water, but you keep getting thirsty. But I will give you something and you'll never thirst again. Verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never ever thirst again. That's the thrust of the Greek. Never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well, a pege, a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now this is not a process. So many people that think salvation is a process. This is a well. Once you receive this water, here it comes. This is the living water that Jesus offers. Once you accept that, and it goes into you, and that's accepting Christ as your Savior, then it immediately springs forth to eternal life. It is a one-time action. It is yours forever. Now the woman finally is getting a hint that Jesus is talking about something a little more than what she's been talking about, but she's still fuzzy. Look at her answer in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty. She's still on the physical plane. She's not getting the point yet that we're talking about spiritual issues yet. How many times have you tried to communicate to somebody, maybe a family member, maybe a friend, and they're just not interested in spiritual issues? Jesus keeps, keeps working at it. Now he shifts gears. He's going to point out what that need is. He's going to confront her with the sin issue, the morality issue. Now he does this not to embarrass her. I really want to make a point out of this. Because a lot of people think that, well, when Jesus said this, this must have been terribly embarrassing. He's criticizing or judging. No, he's not doing any of that. He's very sensitive here, but he wants her to understand reality. He wants to shake her and get her out of this stage of denial that she's been in. And he says, go, call your husband and come here. You see, what happens with every unbeliever, and we were all there, and it happens to us too, is we get involved in arrogance. And in arrogance, we think we can interpret reality on our own. And it starts off, because arrogance starts off with the first arrogant skill, which is self-absorption. We're just so focused on ourselves and our own life that we just don't want to think about anything else and the world revolves around us. Self-absorption then always leads to self-justification. We want to justify our self-absorption. 
And this is this woman. She's just operating on self-justification. And any unbeliever, full of himself, focused on his own life, and he's going to justify every belief he has, everything he's doing. God's going to understand. God's, God knows I'm weak. God knows that, that, that I really tried. And all he cares about is sincerity. Well, God is a righteous judge. And the issue is not the love of God. Why can't I, how can a loving God send His creatures to hell? Remember, the issue is a righteous God. How can a righteous God let His creatures come into heaven? So when we try to rely on the sincerity defense, remember, it doesn't matter how sincerely sorry you are that you ran the red light and you ran over the four-year-old, that four-year-old is still dead. Now, that's a harsh example, but it's irreversible. That's the point. It doesn't matter how sincerely sorry you are you can't turn back the clock. Sincerity doesn't matter, and we can't justify ourselves and rely upon sincerity and religion and all these other options. We can only rely on the work of Jesus Christ. And this always leads to the third arrogant skill, which is self-deception. Self-deception, we are in denial about ultimate reality, and we've convinced ourselves that all of this is real, and I really don't need to be concerned about spiritual things because somehow it's all going to work out in the end. And Jesus just breaks through this whole facade of self-absorption here when he asks about her husband. Now, one little side point I want you to note here. Well, I'll come back to this. One thing we need to notice, and notice how this impacts her. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Now, in the Greek, that's only three words. Only three words. But this woman is not a woman known for brevity. If you look back at her previous statements, in verse 9, she, made a sentence, she had a sentence that had 11 words. In verses 11 and 12, her statement had 42 words in the original Greek. In verse 15, her statement has 13 words in the original Greek. This is a rather talkative woman. She's just very chatty when she comes down to the well and has this conversation with this Judean man who, who wants her to give him a drink of water. But as soon as he mentions her husband, I have no husband. I don't want to talk about it. Don't mention that. She is now beginning to realize that there's something going on here more than just the desire for water. And he is simply pointing out to her that she is a sinner. She has been in moral failure because she knows that she's living with some guy. She's shacked up back in Sychar. And she really is probably catching a lot of grief for it among the community, and they've ostracized her. So this is a very painful subject. And she responds by saying, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you've said, well, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Now, I want to make a little side point here. We live in an era when there are a lot of failed marriages, and this is really sad. And there's a lot of legalism about the whole subject of divorce and remarriage. And there are some people who teach that once you are married, you are married for life and for eternity. And that what God has put together at X point in time, no man, that is no judge, can come along and recognize any sort of divorce. What God, what God has put together, no man can, can take asunder. And therefore, that no matter what happens in the legislative realm, that God never recognizes divorce. That's what's taught by so many people today. Now, this passage 
I mean, nobody ever goes to this passage on a divorce and remarriage issue, but th- that's what underlies this whole thing. Jesus uses an aorist tense verb here from echo. E-C-H-O, which means to have. If it was a perfect tense, which is the way it's translated, you have had, perfect tense emphasizes the present results of a past action. That would indicate that these five husbands, five men, were still her husband. See, the underlying assumption here is when somebody divorces and remarries, the reason God doesn't recognize it is because they're still married. And this is why it's adultery now. And the assumption is that once you get married, no matter what a court of law may say, that divorce is never recognized by God. But this passage shows that God does recognize the finality of divorce. Because Jesus uses an aorist tense verb, indicating that this is over and done with. You have had five husbands. Now, it's very likely, we're not told that she divorced them, but this is uh, probably a young woman. They didn't have a long life expectancy. I would say she was probably between her between 30 and 40. She could have been a little older, but the indications are that she is uh, not an older woman. She's had five husbands. One or two of them perhaps have died, but that's not likely. So she's probably had at least one divorce, and now she's living with a guy. But Jesus' statement here recognizes the finality of those five previous marriages, that they're over and done with, and that's not the issue. What he's pointing out simply is, look, woman, you've had some moral failure in your life, and now you're shacked up with a guy. You're living with this person in, in adultery or fornication, and there are some spiritual issues that you need to pay attention to. And she does. Verse 19, she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, this is a very important word. Back in Deuteronomy, Moses said that there would be a prophet greater than he that would come. This term for prophet is a technical term. She's not just saying you're just some guy who's able to tell tell the future, you know something, but she's beginning to recognize that he's not just a prophet, but this guy might be the prophet. This was a term that was used to refer to the Messiah. So by pointing out the fact that she is not living alone, that she's living with somebody, he's pointing out the moral issue. He finally has her attention, and she's beginning to focus on some spiritual things. So let's wrap up with what we've learned about witnessing so far before we get into the uh, core of what Jesus teaches in the next few verses. First of all, we need to begin on a common ground of creaturehood, not on a common ground of ideas like history, reason, or logic. It's not up to us to prove Christianity, to prove the inadequacy of the other person in their thinking, but perhaps what we can do is show the other person that, just as Jesus did with Nicodemus, that their system, which is based on rationalism, empiricism, or mysticism, that ultimately they can't live consistently with that system, and so it is inadequate. It doesn't provide any sure and certain answers. That's the problem with legalism. We can use the same thing when you're dealing with the religious legalist. This is a person who's all caught up in all their religious activity, going to church, going through various rituals, whatever it may be. Is that going to get you good enough to take care of the perfect righteousness of Christ? 
And the scripture says no. The scripture says man's problem is he's minus R. He has no righteousness. All his righteousness are his filthy rags. What has to happen is that God has to provide a solution. God, the perfect righteousness of, of Christ, can only accept perfect righteousness. That's why he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross as a substitute for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become in him the righteousness of God. So that at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, God gives us the perfect righteousness of Christ. We are saved once, forever. Now that's the beginning of a new life. It's not the end. That doesn't mean, okay, I'm saved. I'm just going to go live like I want to. You can. You're still going to be saved. But you will not grow anywhere and you will enter into heaven yet as through fire. You'll be a failure in the Christian life and there will be nothing of value for you in terms of rewards or inheritance when you get to heaven. But you will still get to heaven. On the other hand, you are, we are required now that we are in the family of God to live on the basis of that. We have received adoption and we have to learn and grow. And this is the issue of, of uh, practical righteousness, experiential righteousness, which comes as a result of spiritual growth. We have to learn the Word of God. We have to grow. Uh, study to show thyself approved unto God. And spiritual growth is the issue because God saved us for a purpose and that is to make us like His Son, Jesus Christ and develop Christ-like character. And that's what we've been studying on Wednesday night in our study of James. So back to witnessing. First of all, we began on the common ground of creaturehood. We don't try to prove Christianity uh, or prove the inadequacy of their system to show they're wrong. You don't get involved in an ego system. But you can help show that on the basis of their assumptions that they can't live consistently with that. Secondly, Jesus focused on her dependency as a finite creature by saying, you and I both need water, give me something to drink. And then he began to focus on grace. If you knew the gift of God, you would have asked me and I would have given you. This word giving is, always reminds us of grace. He focuses on grace. And then fourth, he provides a solution, explains the solution, that this is infinitely satisfying. It's better than all other options because in Jesus Christ you have eternal life. You can know it now. You can have it forever. And we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Paul said, I am persuaded that neither uh, life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Everything we have, eternal life, is given to us at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone and we can never lose it. Now I think that the woman at the well begins... She might even be saved around verse 19. Remember, this is a very abbreviated uh, re uh, record of the conversation. Somewhere around here, when she says, I perceive that you're a prophet, she's beginning to recognize that he's making messianic claims, and he is who he claims to be. And then she begins to ask some questions. She is engaged in the conversation, and she's asking some very important questions that bring out some vital spiritual truth. And so we'll get into that because it deals with the whole concept of worship and what worship is. And if there's one thing that is more misunderstood today than worship, I don't know what it is unless it's salvation. But worship is distracting many people. They're confused by it. They're going to church engaged in all kinds of activity that has nothing to do with worship. And they call it worship. In fact, today the pastor is no longer the worship leader. In most churches, it's the guy who's leading the singing, and the pastor is just the administrator. That's how they've reduced that gift. 
So next time we will look at the doctrine of worship, what it is and what it isn't, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together and to study your word. Father, we pray that right now at this moment, if there's anyone here who is not sure of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to put their faith alone in Christ alone. All they have to do is say, Father, I realize that I'm a sinner. There's nothing I can do to earn salvation or deserve salvation. I accept your free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ who died on the cross as my substitute. That's all that's necessary. It's not an issue of good works. It's not an issue of church attendance. It's not an issue of church membership. It's an issue of trusting in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul made it clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, as we go throughout our week, we pray that you would help us to remember the things that we have learned today, to focus on them, meditate on them, that they may be assimilated into our souls, to strengthen us spiritually, provide for our spiritual growth, that we may glorify you in everything we do, in everything we say, in everything we think. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.